Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, <clears throat> we're going to turn back again to Proverbs chapter 29. And uh, you'll uh, remember just by a quick uh, um, going back over last week for a few moments, we finished our section that really dealt with getting the vision. And, uh, you know, and we talked about how that it's true of a church and how it's my responsibility to uh, go through that process last week that, that you as a church, our church, understands uh, the burden of God and the vision of God. And, but it's also true of a parent. Uh, and our success will depend on us getting God's vision, whether it's a church or whether it's your family. And through that burden, God will reveal then, of course, uh, the vision that He has for us. Uh, you know, it was a two-week study running through verses 14 through 18. And as you now uh, can see, it was really loaded with some great practical principles, uh, not only for uh, pastoring, if you ever uh, get in, you find yourself in that scenario, but certainly also for parenting. But, you know, and I didn't have time last week because I wanted to really focus on, but it's also true of any nation. And where a church or a school or a nation or an individual loses contact with God and, and God's relationship, uh, revelation, excuse me, of history uh, and its purpose, it, it's going to perish. Psalms 9:17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. And when a man or a nation's vision becomes some pragmatic goal with no real truth or meaning to it, in time it's going to self-destruct. And of course, history is the greatest witness to that. We think about the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Hittites or the Assyrians. Where are they now? They're gone. They're, 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 they're gone to the dust of the earth. They don't even remain. People don't even know anything about them. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where they, it's so true. Uh, it's just a great principle. Of course, the book of Ecclesiastes talked about how that everything that man tries to do outside of God is, is vanity. And certainly we see it. You know, uh, the unsaved nations or man, you know, their vision for the future, you know, of man is just a one world system that they run. We find it first in Genesis chapter 10. That's where it starts a place that they want to have a false peace and love and all getting along together in harmony, you know, and without God or without any reference to His Word or anything of His principles. And it's so true. Where God is not the vision and the revelation of His Word is not your burden, uh, you're done. I mean, it, I don't care if you're a parent. I don't care if you're a church. I don't care if you're an individual or the United States of America. And again, we see in the book of Ecclesiastes, I forget how many exactly it is, 34 or 35 attempts recorded for you in Ecclesiastes talking about under the sun on this earth. 34 or 35 attempts of man to come up with a system, a government, a, a plan that will replace God's plan. And of course, you know, it just won't work. All unsaved leaders, you know, the visionaries that we talk about or you hear so much about, they share the same opium pipe dream when it comes to the future of man. You know, these will be the, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the one-worlders, the tree-huggers, the people who, you know, the kingdom-builders, the international socialists, the left-wing politicians, science and education. And the vision that they have, no matter where it is in history, no matter who it is, it all follows the same pattern. Get everybody together, get rid of the Bible and churches that preach contrary to what we're trying to do, have everyone share equally, you know, uh, eliminate capital punishment and all war, get rid of all of that, and then, you know, and then find a dream world in outer space, you know, through space exploration that, you know, that we can, you know, and I, and I enjoy listening about what they find in outer space. I've always been interested in astronomy and all of that, but I'm not under any illusion that every time that NASA does something, no matter what it may be, it's for one fundamental reason. That is to discount the Word of God and come up with an alternative plan to the Bible. And without a doubt, you know, a false vision will be a thousand times worse than no vision at all. And, uh, you know, and now we know from last week that whether it's a church, a family, or a Christian, or a nation, we will be dead in the water without a burden from God and then a vision from God of seeing who we really are and what God has for us to do. 
And uh, last week, we built around the last couple of weeks of a key verse in 29.18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, there's no greater truth anywhere in the Bible. Man's quest for a one-world system, a perfect utopia where everybody is happy and gets along, uh, is just, uh, it's a, just a retread of what they try to do in Genesis chapter 6. And, you know, the Bible is a complete circle. And the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And here it is, just like it was back then. Everybody trying to get together, everybody trying to put God out of it and make their own plan. The only thing missing today is the sons of God of Genesis chapter 6. But if you listen carefully, I think they're pulling into the driveway any moment now. And that's where we're at today. Now, today, going with like last week, the vision and the burden... I want to spend some time, you know, it's one thing to tell you about getting a burden, getting a vision, but I want to do more than that because, you know, you can give somebody all of that and then they walk out of here saying, well, that's good, but how do I, how do I get there? How do I do that? And I want to talk to you today on the next set of verses that when you read these verses, I'll be honest, you wouldn't get it out of there, but once you start to look at it and put it into context and start to think about it with the rest of the Bible, it becomes a pretty powerful idea that I want to talk to you about today. And I want to look at our building that relationship with God to have that burden and have that vision. Because I want you to know there'll be no burden nor there'll be no vision without a biblical relationship and fellowship with us with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of misconception about that today. A lot of things that people don't understand about building that relationship or how to it. Most churches today, as most Christians today, think they have an okay relationship with God. And the truth of the matter is, if you put it up against the Bible, they're so far away from a real biblical relationship with God, it's unbelievable. Yet every Sunday, all week long, we hear it, we see it. Now today, I want to look at 29 verses 19, 20, and 21. Just three short verses today. And let me read it. And then we'll come back and we'll, we'll pray about it and we'll, uh, we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. And Lauren, when I'm done reading this, if you'd stand up and ask the blessing on the service this morning, I'd appreciate it. It says this, A servant will not be corrected by words, for though he understand, he will not answer. Seest thou a man that is hasty in his words? There is more hope of a fool than of him. He that delicately blingeth up his servant from a child shall have him become his son at the length. Lauren, if you would, please. Now, I want to show you, as I stated a moment ago, I want to walk you through a biblical process for you to build a relationship with Christ that in time you will get that burden and in time God through that burden will develop your vision for you. And the verses here fundamentally are a general truth that will fit in many scenarios. But I want to keep it in the context of of last week. And verse 19 says, A servant will not be corrected by words, for though he understand, he will not answer. And when I I saw that verse this last Monday when I started looking at it to put it all together, I thought to myself in an instant, man, I don't know of another verse that fits God's people better than this verse right here. It really does. And I want to look at it for a moment here. Now, first of all, let's talk about our servant. The servant here will be a slave within our context, someone who has no freedom, someone that is under the bondage of a master, and he's been bought and sold, and uh, he can't have the freedom to go wherever he wants and do whatever he wants. And in our verse, this guy, has he knows the system. He knows how it works. Uh, he has learned uh, to play the game, so to speak. He knows that for the rest of his natural life, he's going to be a servant. He's never going to be able to make his own decisions. And he has learned uh, the best way to survive in this given situation. And he has learned what to say and what not to say. 
And verse 1 says that when he's under the control of his master, when he's corrected, he knows exactly how to respond to it. He understands what he's saying, but he will not answer to it. And it's an incredible concept. He knows what to say, but he won't say it. He obeys his master, even though to him it's a game. It's a game that he has to play to survive. He doesn't serve his master because he loves him. He serves him because he wants to survive as a servant and make the best life in the circumstances that he can. He really has no alternative. So when he's reproved or he's corrected, he only changes his action. He does not change his attitude about his master or being a servant. He pretends on the outside that he's okay with it all, but on the inside, he's in rebellion. It reminds me of a story I heard years ago about uh, children. A guy was driving, uh, and his his seven-year-old, six-year-old son was in the car in the front seat with him, and the kid was kind of a rebellious kid, and the kid like all kids, his dad is driving and the kid is standing up in the seat so he can look out the window. Well, we all know how dangerous that can be, especially if you have to stop suddenly. So the dad says, son, you need to sit down and, and, and buckle, buckle your seatbelt. And he says, no, I don't want to do that. And his dad says, now, come on, we, we need to do that because, uh, you know, for your own safety, just sit down and snap that seat in. And he says, I can't see. I don't want to sit down. Well, after going back and forth for a few moments, the dad was getting quite irritated with the defiance of his son, so he reached over and and grabbed him and threw him down in the seat and said, now buckle that seat belt. And of course, the kid complied, and he did that. And the dad said, that's better. And the kid looked up and said, I may be sitting in this seat, but I'm standing in my mind. (laughs) And that's what... A servant does. Now, for me, you know, I I think the best way to teach your kids the lessons is through experience. I'm sure a dog would have run out in front of me and I'd have had to slam on the brakes. And when he hit his bridge of his nose on the console or the windshield, I would have said, now see why we buckle up? Just kidding. Inward rebellion. And, and that's the context. This, this servant, he hears the rebuke and the reproof. He, he pretends that he's okay with it, but inside is an inward rebellion. And in other words, you know, they, they'll tell you what you want to hear. Now, in Christianity, you'll find that 95% of God's people are the same way. At least I've found that over my years. And the great verse for it actually is in the Old Testament in Psalms chapter 78. If you'd turn back there to it for me, we won't read the whole chapter. But it's dealing with the nation of Israel and their same kind of rebellious attitude that they had toward God that so many of God's people have today. And it says in Psalm 78 verse 36, Nevertheless, This is Israel now talking about God. Nevertheless, they did flatter him, God, with their mouth, and they lied unto him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh." Praise the Lord for that verse in your Bible. I want you to know. If you don't have that one marked, you better mark it. But he, 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 he remembered that they were all just flesh. A wind that passes away and cometh not again. How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Now, this is what I call lip service Christians. That's what Israel was. Israel flattered him with their words, but their heart was far from him. And I found that uh, that's what a servant does. That's what a servant does. He, he, he flatters the master or the guy in charge, but he himself, he, he, he doesn't 
she's far from any kind of relationship with him. Now, I just need to say here for a moment because this jumped out at me the other day and I thought, what an incredible thing this is. Look at verse 41. Quite a concept in verse 41. Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. You know, we don't think much about the fact that when God saves us, He saves us for a plan, and He wants to enact that plan through us, and He won't enact that plan without us. And when we turn back and go back to the world, at least turn away from God, you know what we do? We do the same thing that Israel did. We limit God. That's quite a concept. God who can do anything is limited by you and I not doing anything. And I'll tell you, that's an incredible thing that you need to stop and think about today. And I will inject that throughout the morning as best I can here. And it's a thing uh, when we turn back. And, you know, these people will serve God out of fear or obligation, sometimes guilt, sometimes spite, or sometimes for just personal gain. And, And sometimes, you know, they'll just give God, they're saved, or they claim they are, and they just give God the absolute minimum. Or they give God nothing at all. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a thing where you see this all the time in dealing with people. And I'm sure many of you who, you know, work with people with me or, you know, just or come to this church for any length of time, you, you see that happening. You know, my favorite verse when it comes to lip service Christians and people who are like this is found over there in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. I think it's the greatest single verse anywhere in the Bible that God asked us. And he says this, why, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Now, boy, I'll tell you what, that is so true. Now, let me just clarify a point here. I totally understand the aspect of a child of God, us being a servant. I get that. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. And here's a great verse that uh, uh, tells us right out of the gate that we are a bond slave if you're saved this morning. We don't have any rights. We were bought at Calvary's cross, and now we are a servant. And that's the context of this passage today, a servant that just stays a servant and never develops a relationship with the one who bought him. Now, I, I, you find this concept of us being a slave. The, the, the modern Laodicean church today uh, is called Laodicea. Laodicea means rights of the people. In true reality, from a Bible standpoint for you and me, we have no rights. We're a bond slave. That's why in Acts chapter 8, the first person that got saved, like you and I got saved, where you can actually go down and see every aspect of that salvation just like you got saved after Israel rejected in Acts chapter 7, is a servant of servants. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. That's why at the crucifixion of Matthew chapter 27, verse 32, when Christ is dragging that heavy cross to Calvary, they compelled Simon the Cyrenian. Cyrenian is North Africa. He's a servant of servants. He's a black man. And they threw him in the mix. And as he helped bore the cross with the Lord Jesus Christ, he took the rebuke just like Christ did, showing me again that my attitude of a Christian, once I'm saved, is to be a servant of servants. It's so clear. And you know, you'll notice here in verse 20 that it says, for you're bought with a price, therefore glorify in your body and your spirit, which are God. doesn't say soul, just like the question we had Thursday night because it's talking about your soul's already sealed. It's already glorifying God, but it's your spirit and your flesh we got to worry about. Now, I get all of that. But I want to jump down for a moment to verse 21, and then we'll come back in. I want to show you something, and boy, this is something. Because I'm talking to you this morning about once you got saved, you are a servant. But you don't want to just stay a servant. Now look at verse 21. He that delicately bringeth up his servant from a child shall have become his son at the length. 
Now, here's the difference between a Christian who never really develops a relationship with God and just serves Him as a servant. Lip service Christianity versus a child of God who serves Him as His son because He loves Him and because of what uh, they have together through a relationship uh, of love and fellowship. Now, the book that you want to see for this, if you ever want to really lay it out, and you remember, I don't know, what was it, eight or nine years ago on a New Year's Eve before we got into the Bad Bad Avenue Baptist blowout, we would take a book of the Bible and we'd start around 6 o'clock and go to midnight and just cover everything in the book and lay it out so you'd have it. One time we did a Song of Solomon. I think it's in the back there in the John in the book. We have it back there. John put it out in a book for you. I'm just going to tell you this. You will never have the right relationship and fellowship with God till you first understand the book of Song of Solomon. Because Song of Solomon, here again, Song of Solomon is a guy, Solomon, who's got a thousand wives. And out of those thousand wives, he can't find one that's virtuous. And when he finds one that's virtuous, read it yourself. She's a black woman. Again, a servant of servants. And in that story, in that picture, you'll find that that's probably the odds in our relationship with God. Probably one out of a thousand of God's people ever find a true relationship and fellowship that God wants to have with them. That's what that book's all about. And in that book, you know what it does? Chapter by chapter, it'll talk about God looking at His bride, Christ looking at the church, and laying out through all the symbolism there, laying out how much He loves her, And then the next chapter, or many times in the same chapter, it'll just switch roles, and now it'll be the church, you and me, looking and expressing what we feel for Him. And, uh, you know, most of God's people, they don't know how to love God. They've never went through a process that I'm going to show you here to learn how to love God. And all of their life, they're saved and they're on their way to heaven, but they're they're just a servant, and they never from the time that they were born, get developed to become his son. It's one thing to serve God as a servant. It's something else to be God's servant as his son. And that's the difference I want to talk about this morning. And hopefully some of you, many of you, if any of you, will pick up that and and begin to understand that. You know, the key word here is delicately. That means softly tenderly, in a nurturing way, kindness, bringing up his servant from a child. That's the day you got saved. You know, and that's a picture of us getting saved and then through that five-step process that I gave you last week, or it's a picture of you and your children. I gave you last week, and I gave it to you several times in dealing with, last week I showed you how it's the same thing you do with the church as you do with your children. You know, uh, the, the five stages that you build into a parent will build into their children, and as a pastor, my job is to try to build it into you. And of course, it's the discipline stage where you start. Very, very, very young, when you first get saved, we, we do the discipline stage. We call it discipleship. Then you move into the relationship stage. Then you move into the fellowship stage. Then you move into the responsibility stage. Then you move into the ministry stage. And God delicately building a relationship with us through our fellowship with Him and then developing through these five stages the burden of God and then in time, giving us the vision of God. But it'll never come without a relationship. It'll never come, the burden or the vision will never come without a fellowship relationship with Him. Building a relationship with Him that is on that intimate basis that most of God's people never know. They never get to. They just, churches today won't teach it. They, they just lost. You couldn't, find, you couldn't find two books out there that would tell you the process because it's a lost process. And I've told you how many times have I laid out for you the seven things that you lose when you lose your Bible. And you know what one of them is? Your ability to love God the way you should. We've been through it many, many times. Now, Nobody ever just gets saved and the next day you love God. It doesn't happen that way. I know in the big churches, I know Joel Osteen presents it that way. 
You know, I know all the big pastors present it that way. That's because, one, they don't know how to do it themselves, and two, if they did, they don't want to waste their time with you. They're too busy counting the offerings. But I'm telling you right now, you cannot get saved and then just suddenly the next day you love God and have fellowship with God. And if you think you can do that, uh, you don't know very much about the Bible. Obviously, there's some great examples of that in the Bible. To me, the greatest one is Abraham and God. And Abraham, when when chapter 12 of Genesis, where God really calls him out and begins to work with him, and he begins to call him out, Abraham can't trust God for anything. Yet he believed God enough to count him for righteousness when God told him about the stars. He can't trust God in anything. God said, leave and let go, let all your family go. He took Lot with him. Disobeyed God. He got down there with, with there and a king said, hey, I, 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 is that woman your wife? And he was afraid to trust God because he was afraid if he said yes, they'd kill him in his sleep and then take her to be his wife. So he lied and said, no, she's my sister. He got the promise from God that he was going to have the seed, but he's 86 years old. So he can't trust God in that, and then he winds up taking Hagar and making a mess for the next five, 6,000 years for the nation of Israel. But all but the time you get to Genesis chapter 22, he's learned some things. There's a great pivotal chapter in Genesis in Abraham's life. It's chapter 18 and 19. It's where actually God changes his name from Abram to Abraham and Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah. Well, I don't have time to get into the seven name changes in the Bible and how they relate to us, but it's an incredible thing. We've talked about it many times. So now we see by the time he gets to Genesis chapter 22, he's grown some things. Abraham is called the friend of God. He's one of only the two men in the Bible that's called that. But he didn't start out being God's friend. And God wants to be your friend today, but you will not just simply start out to being God's friend. For Abraham, there was a process. He had to go from Genesis 12, where he couldn't trust God for anything, to Genesis chapter 22, where he was willing to lay Isaac on the altar, put the fire and the wood under him, and take a knife and would have plunged that knife into his son's chest if God's hand wouldn't have stopped him. What happened from point A to point B? Well, whatever happened, what's need to happen in our lives? How he got from the place where he couldn't trust God from anything, but yet God, he was going to serve God. But he had to get to the point where he had a relationship and fellowship that he wasn't just God's servant, that he became something special to God. And right there, folks, will be our issue of just staying a servant. And never growing up to love him as a son loves his father. Now, I get it. I get it. The Bible says that 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, I understand all the verses. You're not going to give me anything I don't already know. It says we are the sons of God. I get that. And that's absolutely true doctrinally. But that doesn't necessarily mean that in our personal relationship with him. That may be true doctrinally as far as God's concerned, but that may not be true in our own personal relationship with him of how we look at it and how our attitude is about it. Now you see this model, and I don't want to belabor this point, but you see this another model in the twelve apostles themselves. You had twelve apostles. They will picture for us what you have in the church today. You have one in there that's a phony. That would be Judas. That tells me that probably not everybody here today is saved. I wish that wasn't true, but the model says that it probably is true. That left 11. Out of the other 11, they all went out and did everything that God wanted them to do, but out of that 11, there was three guys that did it closer, cleaner, and had a very close, special relationship with the Lord more than the other guys. You know who it was? Peter, James, and John. Go through your New Testament. Every time there's a great miracle, Mount of Transfiguration, the rising of Jairus' daughter, wherever you go, it'll always tell you that the inner three, Peter, James, and John, were there. Where are the other guys? What are they doing? And then when you take that inner three and you want to really crack the magnification down on it, you'll find out of those three there's only one that goes all the way, and that's John where everybody else is run off at the crucifixion, where's John? He's at the foot of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. John is the greatest picture in the New Testament of what a Christian should be 
in his relationship with Christ. You know, he's the only apostle that Jesus said he loved. And yet Jesus loved them all. He did something that nobody else would do at the Last Supper. He leans over and hears, uh, puts his head on the very breast of Jesus, and, uh, which is found in the Song of Solomon, and he hears the heartbeat of God. Nobody else in the Bible did that. There's, and the only other person in all the world can do it is you. And you hear the heartbeat of God through this. When John is standing down there at the cross, Jesus' mother, who's a type of the nation of Israel, is there. What did Jesus do? He looks at John, type of the church, and he looks at his mother, a type of nation of Israel, and he gives the watch care of his mother Israel to John the church. You'll find that in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11. Incredible stuff. And when Christ, through his established structure, the church, he will delicately bring you up from the day you get saved as a child and develop you through these five relationship things that it's my job to build into you just like it's your job to build them into your children. And he'll build you and develop you into a son that serves him because you love him, not because you're a servant, and that's what makes the difference. But the spirit of our time is so far from this principle and this great teaching of the Bible. We fall in love with Christ, but we never really get to know Christ. Song of Solomon, him and me. So when two or three months, hey, I've seen it all my ministry. Somebody will come on Sunday morning or Thursday night or whatever special thing and they'll get saved. And they'll show up for a week or a month. We'll start to disciple them and then they're gone. They're gone. They're no longer around. Why is that? And I'll tell you why it is. Because you, you fell in love with God. You never understood the concept of you got to know how to love Him and let Him build that relationship. So because you fell in, three months later you find something better, something more shiny, something better and more glitchy, and then you fall in love with that and fall out of love with Him. Your whole life, if you don't know this, your whole life is a world that's after your affections. Your, our whole lives, they want your affection and they want your money. They want you to go to the mall and look at all the windows to see what you don't have. And they want to portray everything out there that will you, the world will make you think will make you happy and complete. From the good times, good friend, good Laura Brown, to this budge for you, to everything the world has to offer to try to get you to believe that, that that's where it really is. And the whole life, your whole life will be a, a race with the world for your affections. And you, you cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in your Bible and build a working relationship. My Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, that you're to set your affections on things above. Your affections need to be settled and set that the world can never get it again. And that, you know, clearly, 1 John will teach us the great truth. It'll teach us the great truth that to know him is to love him. And, you know, we live in a world where we love all the wrong things. Now, I'm going to hit this one kind of easy because we all do this and I don't, I, like, I don't mind preaching to myself as long as it doesn't get to me. <laughs> we love based on sight. The phrase is, love at first sight. Oh, honey, I think it was love at first sight. Darling, I think it was love at first sight. Love at first sight usually translates to alimony payments every month, about five or six years <laughs> down the line. And that's because we live in a world where we fall in love with things. The degeneration of our society, you know, we've lost the concept of love. 
You know, and I'm not criticizing anybody because we all do it. I do it. But listen to me. I love this house. I love this car. I love this dress. We love things that do not have the ability to love us back. And I get it. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you understand that our society today is based on falling in love and starting learning how to love somebody. And then later on we fall out of love with somebody uh, when they come along. And we, we do the same thing with God. And this will answer so many questions for you and me why a man or a woman will get saved and three or four months later never see him again. They turn back. And when they turn back because God wanted to be the step, for them to be the structure that he worked through and God had a plan for their life, when you turn back and you reject that, then you limit God. Because God has to do it through us. Now, there's two great examples of this in the book of 1 John and in the book of the Gospel of John. And I mentioned 1 John a few moments ago. Both of them are written by the greatest Christian that, that ever lived, which I've already told you about, John. Now, get this down. The Gospel of John was written for one purpose mainly, for you and for me. There's got a lot of doctrinal things in it, but fundamentally, inspirationally, it was written to you and me to lay out salvation. If you want the definitive verse on why the book was written, it's John chapter 20, verse 31. Here's what he says. But these things are written that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Then the gospel of John was primarily written to you and me to get you saved. You know, there's times when, uh, you know, I know Bearing Precious Seed does this and other churches do it too, when they don't print all the Bible because they don't want to give out a whole Bible to somebody, but they want to use a, a, a verse or a book that will get people saved, they'll give them the gospel of John. Because John was written to show you your salvation. Now, the second book, and that's the epistle of 1 John. John writes them both. Hey, there's five wisdom books in the Old Testament written by Solomon and a couple other guys, and there's five wisdom books in the New Testament all written by John, and they'll line right up with you. And the second book is the epistle of 1 John, also written by John. And where Gospel of John was written to lay out your salvation, 1 John was written to lay out your relationship fellowship with him. And a definitive verse in the passage will be 1 John chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. He says, And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Now, if you want to have a full joy, here's what you got to do. And this is why you are so miserable. This then is the message. Then he's got a message for us. Here it comes. And it's not the message of salvation. Watch what it is. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. Then there's a definitive verse on your fellowship. John the gospel laid out you need to get saved and then 1 John he writes about once you are saved, how do you build that relationship you build it by fellowship and relationship. Now, having said that, every commentator I ever read, almost without exception, every pastor I ever listened to on the book of 1 John said that the theme of 1 John was love. And you'll find that in probably all your study Bibles. You'll find that. And, you know, and I've never understood things like this. I really don't. I mean, I do, but I don't. I don't think anybody is that blatantly stupid. I mean, maybe they don't read the Bible. I don't know. Maybe they get all of their stuff out of somebody else's books. I don't know. But I ask myself, how would a man come to the conclusion that the theme of 1 John is love when in five short chapters, 27 times, he tells you that the key to God is knowing him? You see, and that's what we do. We try to love him before we know him. And that's where the breakdown comes in. You think somebody might catch that. And clearly, 1 John will teach the greatest single truth that I could ever give you, and that is to know him 
is to love him. And trying to love him without knowing him will never work and you'll never build a relationship and you stay a servant all of your life, but you'll never be allowed to be developed to become his son. And this will answer so many questions of why so many people will not make it in Christianity today. And let me tell you something. As a pastor, I'm going to tell you to give up this world and the things that are in it, and I'm going to. If I'm going to tell you to give up booze and give up drugs and give up cigarettes and give up this and give up that, that's all good, fine and dandy. Praise the Lord. What a great preacher. But I want to tell you something. If you're going to tell somebody to give all that stuff up, you best better have something to replace it with. And that's the problem. We talk about all the things that we give up, but pastors are so inept when it comes to the Scripture that they don't have anything to give them to replace that void of what they're giving up. And if you think for a minute, just tell them to come on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, and Sunday night, we'll do it. You're crazy. No, no. You have to, you have to at the time of salvation, you have to begin to know Him. You have to get into a process by which you were going to allow God to take you as a child the moment you got saved and develop you as a servant into, at the length, His Son. And you do that through relationship and fellowship. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, what a great verse, tells us that uh, we will know Him uh, in three different aspects. He says in that great verse that I may know Him. Do you? Well, here's the three things you're to know him in. That I will know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. Now, let's look at these three things for a moment. Let's talk about it. First of all, power of his resurrection. That's understanding your salvation. Now, I don't know that you're probably not aware of this, but I want to tell you right now, Psalms 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. There was a time when he spake the worlds into existence. He made the galaxies. He put everything in order by his word and the power that he had to create everything that man sees and stands in awe and wonder. And I want to tell you today, if you are saved, if you are saved, you have that exact same power inside you this morning. I learned a long time ago that when you, down at St. Canaveral's, when they launch a rocket, rocketry is an incredible thing because what you do is you take liquid oxygen and hydrogen, which when you put them together, you got a terrible explosion. So you put the one in one tank and the other in the other tank, and then you adjust it that when you blast off, just enough of each comes out at the bottom where you see the fire and the flame, and it causes an explosion that is controlled. It is just in, put the two together, you blow sideways that way. And it's like this, I asked, you know, every time there's a natural disaster and somebody dies in the space program, there's always a bunch of jokes that come out after that. Do you ever notice that? We live in the sickest society. You know, where are the challenger... Ask what color eyes did they have? Blue. One blue this way and one blue that way. That's, that's what we talk about. You know, it's stupid. But that's, that's the mindset. But why did they blow that way? Because those two propellants got together. So when you want a successful, you take this volatile one, volatile here, and you control how much they get together, and the explosion lifts off and gets you into outer space. See, that's what you have. You have the power of God in you that you could wipe out the universe and do everything for God that he wanted you to do. But you got to get those two components controlled. You can't just explode all over the faces of everybody on planet Earth. You have to have it controlled, and you do that through your fellowship and your relationship, through the burden and through your vision. And that's the key. And if you don't do that, you know, when you get saved, we start to bring you through discipleship one. In discipleship one, we talk about the basic things to give you a, a little firm footing on what Christianity is. So we talk about what happened the day you got saved. We talk about how you can't lose your salvation. We talk about all those concepts. When we get to discipleship two, which many of you go through, 
That's where we begin to build the relationship and build the power of his resurrection because there we move up to the next level, which all Christianity is, is going up different levels. Now we get into the level where we're going to talk about the seven things that really changed about you the day you got saved. And you're going to have a better understanding, understanding the power you have right now. You're going to understand the power that you have right now that you didn't have before you got saved. And you're going to answer the question that I guarantee you 99% of the preachers in this country couldn't do, or Christians, and that is explain what really happened the instantaneous moment that you got saved. What changed in your body, what changed about you from the moment you trusted Christ before, after you, before you, when you were a sinner to when you trusted Christ? What really changed? What were the dynamics? Don't use the terminology. Don't say, well, you got born again, or don't give me that. What physiologically and spiritually inside you, what were the seven things that changed? And if you don't figure that out, you're never going to tap into the power. Second thing he says is, is the fellowship of his suffering. We all want to be God's people and Christians to serve God as long as it doesn't hurt. As long as we don't have to pay any price. And I'm telling you, the fellowship of his suffering is going to come into, is going to be understanding the price that was paid for our salvation. Understanding the price that was paid. And I'm telling you, you know, most of God's people, they just go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they see the limited effect of the crucifixion, and it never really impacts them in any way, shape, or never changes anything about them. And, of course, the reason why God did that is because he wants you to study the show thyself approved so the graphic passages that will get your attention and show you the price that was paid are not in the New Testament. They're in the Old Testament. He put them in Isaiah chapter 53. He put them in Job chapter 30. He put them in Job chapter 16, Isaiah chapter 50, Psalms 22, Isaiah 52, Psalm 77. There's where you go to get a complete understanding of on that day on Calvary's cross, the sufferings that he went through, the price that was paid for you and for me, and when you become fellowship with that, Second Corinthians 1.5 says, For us the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ into others. We understand in fellowship of that suffering of what he did for me. So when somebody else is suffering out there and going through it, you can help them understand based on the suffering of Christ for them and for you how we do to better help them. The fellowship of suffering is for three reasons. One, understanding his suffering for me on the cross. Two, better understand to help you when you go through your tough times. Three, better understand how the world hates him and it's going to hate you. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, 2, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you're going to enter into this fellowship, it isn't at Hardee's, it isn't at, it isn't at uh, Jersey Boys, it isn't at uh, you know, the sandwich place or the pizza place, it is the fellowship of his suffering. It is him paying the price for you and now you're willing to paying the price for him. He paid the price for you and me to have it. Now you and I have to pay the price for somebody else to get it. And you're either going to do it or you're going to turn back and limit the Holy One of Israel. Third one, being made conformable unto his death. Not simply dead to the world, but alive to the things of God. In Romans chapter 6, Verse 3, it says, Know ye not that as many of us that were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. I guarantee you the pastors, Baptist preachers across this city would scratch their head on that when they don't have a clue. Someone would be so stupid they'd try to make it water baptism. They wouldn't even understand the great baptism of Ephesians chapter 4. They wouldn't even have a clue. And the bottom line is simply this. Before salvation, and this will be Romans chapter 6 and the whole book of Romans as you bring through the book of Romans chapter by chapter. Before salvation, you were dead in sin. Listen to me. Before you got saved, you were dead in sin and on your way to hell. Once you trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior and you get the power of the resurrection and get into the fellowship of His suffering, 
After salvation, you're dead to sin. Sin has no more dominion over you. You're now dead to the world but alive in Christ. And he says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which were above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not the things of this earth, for you are dead. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. The victory over sin in your life, no matter what it may be, the victorious Christian life that you and I have to, we all long for, it comes back to not just being a servant, but understanding the fellowship that we have is the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, and then being made conformable unto His death. When you're in fellowship with those three things, you're not just a servant anymore. You understand the price that was paid. You know why you love Him. You've learned the process like Abraham to love Him, to be His friend. And 1 Corinthians 8, 3 says, If any man love God, the same is known of him. What a great verse. But just as true is it, if any man doesn't love God, it's known of him also. Because true love will always identify itself with the object. Now, back to verse 20 for a moment. <clears throat> kind of jumped back and forth here, but <clears throat> There's a reason for that. I wanted you to see that principle. Seest therefore, seest thou a man that is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than of him. Now, in our context, this will be the son-servant relationship we're talking about. And based on loving him, based on knowing him, and based on the fellowship and the relationship that you have are being conformed unto his death, in time, God will give you the discernment and discretion in the words that you use to others. And I'm telling you, words can hurt. Words, hasty words, can do damage that in some cases are never repairable. I know somebody says something nasty to you and they said, oh, I didn't mean it, and I take that back. That's just words. You can't take it back. It's, it's been said. And you may say, oh, I, but you'll think about it the rest of your life. But you can't take it back. That's why we need to choose. You know, Jesus will be our perfect model for this. I mean, there's other guys in the Bible that I would say would be really good, but they'll all fail at some point because they're human. We want to get the textbook perfect picture. That'll be Christ. Christ never used words hastily. Did you ever notice that? He always was exact in everything that he said. And this is why I try to push you toward that concept that be exact with what you say with the Bible. He always was exact with whatever he said. He never reacted to any given situation, but he always responded through it through the principles. I'll give you an example. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, you know the story. The money changers are down in the church. They're selling their chickens and their ducks and their pigs. Uh, you know, and he goes in, and he, he's angered at that, and he throws them out, overturns the tables. I mean, he, he really tears up the place. At his words in verse 13, it says, You have made my house a den of thieves. Uh, you know what? Somebody said, uh, that, you know, there, there he spoke hastily. No, he didn't. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. He never spoke out of turn. Everything he said, he had a biblical principle to back up what he was saying. And when he said that to them, he's quoting out of Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. He's right on the line with it. He was never hasty. But through a son-servant love relationship, he had complete control of his words. And for us, it's using verses, principles, chapters to form a context of any given situation and speaking within that biblical context. Now, in your Bible, the definitive book on being a servant, and I said this to the last here, even though we got an hour and a half to go yet. Uh, <laughs> But in your Bible, the definitive book on being a servant will be the, obviously the Gospel of Mark. Probably most of you have figured that out. In the New Testament, you have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of them portray Christ in a different fashion that you, you glean the whole picture by studying each book. Matthew, he's a king. Mark, he's a servant. Luke, he's the son of man. And, of course, John, he's the son of God. Now, in the other three Gospels, uh, you will find uh, three genealogies of Christ. In Matthew, you'll find the kingly genealogy going back through the line of king because he's presented as the king of the Jews. In Luke, he's a human man, son of man, so he's 
It's his human line going back through Mary. And in John, it's his deity line. So he goes back in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He, he goes back in his, in, his, in his godly line to his father. But in Mark, this is interesting. In Mark, he's portrayed as a servant. So there'll be no genealogy in Mark because a servant, a slave, doesn't have any genealogy. He's sold from master to master. The book of Mark, along with the other three Gospels, will show us the biblical pattern for us, uh, you know, uh, through Christ. He was a king. The Bible says that so are you and I, join heir with Christ, Romans chapter 8. He was a man, so are you and I. We struggle with things, just like he did, except he was tempted on all points, like we are, but without sin. And he's God's son, and so are you and I. And you'll find that he was also then God's servant. And there you have it. You have the complete picture of showing you that how Christ was a servant of God, but he was yet a son of God, to the point that God looked at him and said to everybody, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Can God say that about us today? You see, the difference between understanding being a and doing the ministry is a simple thing to see. You know, where the ministry has to be done uh, with the work that we do for God, that's the ministry. But you can do that with a bad attitude. I've known many of preachers that had the worst attitudes on the planet, but they were in the ministry for 30, 40 years. I can give you a list of them. But you see, a servant and a son will always deal with the right attitude towards God as a son to do the work, and you can't fake that. You can't be a son and a servant and have a bad attitude because it all goes back to the love relationship with him. And he goes back to him bringing you up delicately. And bringing you from a servant as a child into the position of his son. And again, our text today, the great context that we talk about in people ministry, attitude versus action. My attitude about Christ will determine my action for him. I'll either be a son and a servant, or I'll just be a servant. The book of Mark will lay out Christ's attitude toward God, uh, toward God as his servants and also as God's son. And it defines for us Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, that great passage there where it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in, fo in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant that was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. Four things, four simple things. The first thing it says that, that uh, he, he had God's form. And we know that he was a son of God. And from John chapter 5, verse 18, Thursday night, we now know that that means he was equal with God. So he, he was made in God's, now look at this thing, he was made in God's image who being in the form of God, God made him that way, but he made himself of no reputation. Then it says he took upon himself the form of a servant. God made him to be equal as a son of God the day that he saved you, just like he did Christ when he sent him to this earth. But I want you to know, even with Christ, he chose to humble himself. He chose to be that servant. And God developed him from a servant to be his beloved son. And that beloved son relationship as a servant, the key to it is obedience. And here, the last thing, the fourth thing, he was obedient unto death. God wants you and I, through a relationship of knowing him, not just to be his servant, but to be his son. The day you got saved, he formed you into the image of Christ. And that's defined for you in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 maybe three, two. But you have to choose to humble yourself. You, he, he made himself. You'll have to make yourself humble. It says he took upon himself the form of a servant. You'll have to do that. How do you do that? Through your relationship with him, understanding the price that was paid for you and for me on Calvary's cross. It's just that simple. He was equal with God, the Son of God, but he took on the form of a servant to be obedient to God's work. A servant's son has the attitude of obedience to his father based on his relationship and his fellowship and the love that they have for each other. Now, my job, 
I do many things here. But fundamentally, after you get saved, my job and everything that I do should be and is to develop you into that son-servant relationship. And I follow what it says and I try to do it delicately to bring you up through those five stages. When you get saved, you start with discipleship. And discipleship will lay, as I already said, the fundamental foundation things that you're going to build on the rest of your life. And then we'll move into the relationship stage. And this is where you'll get a deeper knowledge of what he did for you, what happened to you, understanding the intimate detail of Colossians 2 when you got saved and bring you to the point where you begin to know him and begin to build that relationship with him. And that relationship stage then just moves into the next stage, which is the fellowship stage. Once you learn to know him and what he did for you, through the relationship that you build, the fellowship will come naturally. And that, First John chapter 1 tells us, will be the fullness of our joy. And the reason why we as God's people have no joy today, here it comes. You might knew it was going to hit you sooner or later. The reason why we don't have the full joy in our lives is because we don't have the fellowship we need to. It's just that simple. Then it moves into the, it moves into the re- responsibility stage. And well, I've watched so many of you come through this. And, you know, the, the, the joy of my ministry without ever saying it or putting it out there is to watch you guys go through this. Watch you come in and get discipled. Watch you come into that relationship. Watch you build that fellowship. And then watch you take that responsibility stage. And it's at this stage, once you've disciplined yourself, once you've got the relationship and your, your affections are now set on things above, that's at this responsibility stage that God will give you the burden and show you the vision. Many of us have talked about it in your own life. We've sat out and you, I've watched you come to this point. And it's a point where at this point, you know, it's, it's where you're at now. You're never going back. You see now all that God has done for you. You are going to build on that the rest of your Christian life, and it's only going to get deeper. But you have enough of it now that it ain't ever going to change you. And then you get into the fifth stage, which is the ministry stage. And you fulfill the mission of his, of, that he's given you. Just like Christ. He loved you and me enough to die for us. We have to love him enough to live for him. To finish what he started. Uh, you know, I've said it many, many times. You ever wonder why at 33 years of age, God cut short his life? Why not 70? I mean, the Bible says three score and 10 in Psalms 90. Why not 70? Why didn't he not let him a full life? Why didn't he just, I mean, he was God. Why didn't he just keep him around forever and run the whole program? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why God did so many things biblically and doctrinally by stopping his life at 33. But the main thing for you and for me is the fact that he went back to heaven And then he put into effect the church age, which through that structure, through the word of God, through families, through churches, that that unbreaking chain of Bible teaching goes on and that we, you and me, you and me fulfill what God started with his son but never finished. Now are you the sons of God. But it doth not yet appear what you shall be, because on the outside you all look like who you are. But what's the Son of God about you is on the inside. And God loves you enough to die for us. We need to love him enough to live for him, to finish what he started. Dead to the world, alive to him. He died for me so I could live for him, not myself. Never turning back. Understanding through the fellowship of his resurrection, power of his resurrection, fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death, that I come to the point in my life of building my relationship just like Abraham did, like Jacob did, like Joseph did, and like every one of you are going to have to do, to come to that point in your life where you understand so desperately the mission he has for us, the urgency of the very hour that we live in, the job that God has for this church, 
but also as you as an individual, for us to band together. But the only way that will happen will be through our individual knowing Him, learning how to love Him, knowing what He did for you, knowing what He thinks of you today, knowing what He has for you. And you and I, through that love relationship as a servant, yes, but also as a son, loving our Father, never turning back. And never, ever, ever in our lives allow this world, somebody, or something to limit God in our lives. That we never limit the Holy One of Israel like Israel did. And the only way that will happen is for you to love him more than everything else in this world. And the only way that's going to happen is for you to have more fellowship with him than you do this world. And everything else will take care of itself. That's the job of this church. It's to help every one of you build that working relationship with him that won't just allow you to stay a servant, but will allow you to be a son. That you'll never look back. You'll come to that point where you'll realize what he did for you, and then you'll also realize what you need to do for him. We'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer. Don't forget, uh, sign up for everything out there.